So it's not enough to believe these things uh, just, just for the sake of knowing that they historically happened. Look at the first, um, look at verse 1 of chapter 20. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. It says that she came while it was still dark. Throughout John's gospel, he uses physical darkness as, as a symbol of spiritual darkness. Uh, in, in the first chapter of John, it says that, that people love their sin. They love darkness because it fits who they are. Have you ever noticed that some of the worst places in our world are dark places? They don't like the light. And, and so we, John says that here Mary comes while it is still dark. And Mary is stumbling around in spiritual darkness. And she tries to come to terms with what has happened over the past few days. Let me ask you something this morning. Jesus said... I am come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Do you have life this morning? Do you know true life? Now, life that he talks about is not a life that consists of what we own in this world or who it is that loves us in this world. Life that John talks about, the kind of life that Jesus talks about, the kind of life that the resurrection brings is that life that gives meaning and purpose to who you are. In Christ. Because I will promise you the day will come. When whatever's in your bank account won't matter. Whatever your house looks like. Whatever your car looks like won't matter. Now don't get me wrong. Nothing wrong with having those things. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that they cannot be what our life consists of. Our life cannot. I, I know of people who say, you know, if, if so and so, just, if I don't have them as a husband or a wife, then my life just not worth living. They can't make what our life, uh, what life truly means. And the journey that brings us to faith begins by definition in a darkened understanding. It is only the revelation of the risen Christ that finally brings us into true light. Let me tell you what happened. Those disciples that ran for their life, those disciples that were scared to death, <clears throat> that all changed right here. Do you know what they did next? They went out and turned the Roman Empire on its head. And said, kill it. You want to kill us? Do it. We don't care. You know, I, I remember here a few years ago, I, I read this testimony about this Christian over in the Middle East. And when ISIS was really going along strong, they were cutting people's heads off. And this one guy was quoted as saying, cut it off. I'll have another one in about five minutes. This is what the resurrection does. And Mary bears witness to three important aspects of this revelation. Uh, look at verse 1 again. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooped to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. 
Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. How the linen cloth, he saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. There is the reality of Christ's resurrection. Jesus' resurrection has often been dismissed as, as a myth, as some kind of... Uh, fabrication on the part of the disciples. If you, if you remember in the scriptures, it says that when the soldiers went and told Pilate what had happened or told the captain of the guard what had happened, that they said, look, he's gone. That's all we know. We, we were there one minute. We fell asleep. We woke up. He's gone. And they said, well, here's what you do. If anybody asks, you tell them the disciples came and stole the body. And there, to this day, there are those that believe that is the story. But Mary says, let me tell you something. You don't stand and talk to a dead man. You don't stand and have a conversation with someone who isn't there. She said, I saw and I heard what he said. And if the resurrection was fabricated, then Mary was a terrible choice to be the first person to see him. Because you see, Mary has a checkered past. She was a prostitute that Jesus had forgiven. And she loved him. And as a woman, her, her evidence would be inadmissible in a Jewish court. So Mary is not the ideal witness to proclaim the resurrection of Christ. But I will tell you that the only logical conclusion is that John calls Mary to testify simply because her testimony is genuine. She heard and she saw. It reminds me of the man who was blind, and Jesus came and he healed him, and, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they did not like the fact that Jesus had healed this man. And they're asking him, they're saying, look, who was this man? And he said, I don't know. And they said, well, we think he's a sinner. And he said, well, you can think what you want to. All I know is I was blind, and now I can see. You can't refute that. That's what every believer on earth can say. Look, you can say he's in that grave all you want to. All I know is once I was blind and now I see. Once I was dead and now I'm alive. And so Mary's testimony is genuine. She really did hear and see what she said she did. And so John wants us to appreciate that she is being taken from the darkness of despair. You see, when she went to that tomb, she was brokenhearted. She loved Jesus. Now, one of the other uh, Gospels tells us that she wasn't alone. There were some other women with her. But John focuses on Mary, and she goes, and she's heartbroken, and she, her, her, her Lord that she loved and that she looked to, he, they have taken him, they have crucified him, and now they've buried him, and it's all over. All hope is gone. And she doesn't know what to do. And she goes, and she's downhearted. But John wants us to appreciate that she is being taken from the darkness of despair to the absolute certainty that he is alive.
the single greatest event in the history of the world. Do you understand that? You see, if Jesus had been taken and crucified and buried, we wouldn't even be here today. If that's all that had happened, that would have been completely useless. You know, I, I heard a guy one time stand up and he said, you know, if Jesus had died for me and that's all he'd done, that would have been enough. No, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. He wouldn't be any different than Buddha or Allah or any of these others. But he's risen from the dead. That made all the difference in the world. And it makes the difference for us. And so John is saying, look, Mary goes there with a broken heart. She's in deep despair, the darkness of despair. But she leaves there in the light of hope. She leaves there in the light of hope. This is the very essence of conversion as the hope of the gospel lays hope of a despairing soul of men. If Jesus is dead, then hope is dead. But if he's alive, then hope is alive. Let me ask you something. Have you ever been in despair? Have you ever been depressed? Have you ever looked at this world and said, what's the point? You know, somebody once said that depression is when you look too much inside of yourself. And despair is when you look too much at the world. And I want to tell you something. If I, when I look at my heart, <laughs> yeah, I can get depressed. You know, did you know that your feelings will lie to you? Did you know that you will lie to you? You can't be trusted to tell yourself the truth. If I look at myself and say, are you a good man? And I say, well, yeah, I'm a good man. I have just lied to myself. Because I'm not. Neither are you, by the way. The Bible says there's none good. None. And so we, we look at inside of us and who we are and where we're going. We look at this world and everything that's going on in this world. And we think... What is the point? We see wars and rumors of wars. We see uh, crime escalating to, a, to an astronomical thing. We see the rise of the drug culture. And we just see all this, this, this sin in our world. And we wonder, what is the point? And the point is Christ. You see, Mary went disappointed. She left rejoicing. I always uh, love to read the story about the, the birth of Christ when the, when the wise men come from the east. And, and they're looking for a king. So naturally, they go to the palace of Herod. And they said to Herod, where is he? And he said, I don't know, but I know who does. So he calls the religious leaders. And they say, oh, yeah, he's down there in Bethlehem. Now, it's interesting. They went back home. But the wise men went down there. And Herod said, by the way, when you find him... Let me know so I can come worship him. But that wasn't what he wanted to do. He wanted to kill him. So uh, it's interesting. They go down there and the Spirit of God said to them, don't go back and tell him. When you leave, you leave a different way. And there's an old song that I used to hear. And, it, and the point of it was that whole story was this. When you come to Jesus, you'll always leave a different way. You'll always leave a different way. And that's what happened to Mary. She went to the tomb one way, but she left another way. She left full of hope. So the, the, the reality of his resurrection. Then there's the focus. Look at verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. <clears throat> but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and she wept 
As she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the hand, head and one at the foot. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which is teacher. This is such a beautiful picture. Now, some have asked, how could Mary see him and not know who he was? And, and I want to give you this by way of explanation like this. <laughs> if I'm standing up here preaching to you and all of a sudden I just fall over dead. And you see and you say, yep, he's dead. And you all, and I know you would, all come to my funeral. And you see me lying in a casket. You see them take me down to the graveyard. You see them bury me. And then you come in here next Sunday and I'm standing up here. How many of you is going to believe it's me? <laughs> you know, it's an interesting story. My grandfather, when my grandfather passed away, he, he was a, a preacher and the, the funeral home was packed with people. And, uh, you know, my grandfather had lived and grown up in Van Alstine all his life. And it was interesting because he had an identical twin brother. But there was a lady in his church that didn't know that. And she came to his funeral and there was his brother standing there by the casket. And the lady literally fainted because <laughs> she thought it was him. So anyway, that, that one was free. All right. Listen. Here we see the personal encounter between Jer Jesus and Mary, and, and Mary being overwhelmed with grief, and Jesus simply utters one word, Mary. And when she, he said that, she knew. She knew who this was. This became the turning point of her life in John chapter 10. Jesus, John refers to Jesus as the shepherd, the great shepherd who knows his sheep by name. Do you know that the Bible teaches that I am saved because God chose me before the foundation of the world? Did you know that if you're saved, it's because he chose you before the foundation of the world? You didn't choose him. He chose you. But do you know how he chose you? Do you know how he chose me? One day he came and he said, Bobby. And I didn't say, who are you or which Bobby? I knew who he was talking to and I knew who he was talking about. And he said, come to me. And by the way, he did the same with you. If you've been saved, he calls you by name. So this becomes the turning point. That became the turning point in my life. And that became the turning point in Mary's life. Here, the shepherd who knows her by name. And this is the point at which Mary's darkness is gone and light begins to flood into her life. She, she, she knows who this is. She's not wondering where he is anymore. Her eyes have been opened. The light has shown and she sees Jesus right in front of her and she runs and he says, now go tell them. She says, oh, you, you can't believe me. I'm going to. <laughs> 
course, you know, most people believe that Jesus chose a woman because he knew she'd tell everybody. <laughs> I'm sorry, I tried not to, but... You know. <laughs> But she now sees the resurrection of Christ was not just for someone else. It was for me. It was for her personally when he says, Mary. Look at verse 17 and 18. <clears throat> and Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. The risen and the exalted Christ is the key to a restored and everlasting relationship with God. Now... In order to completely and fully understand the importance of the resurrection of Christ, we have to understand the whole story. Which means we got to go all the way back to Genesis and start from there and go all the way forward. So I hope you all ate breakfast. Listen, there in the garden, God placed Adam and Eve and he said, you can do anything here you want. You can have anything you want except that tree. Anybody know what happened? They ate from the tree and plunged all of humanity into sin. God said, the day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. And Adam died. Now, physically, Adam lived over a hundred more years. But spiritually, that day, Adam died. And we, in Adam, died with him. And we are born into this world dead. Did you know that? You are born in this world spiritually dead. We don't care about God. We don't know about God. All that we focus on is ourself. That is our God right here. And so all of this. So God back then, you see, when, when Adam fell, when he ate from that tree, that did not surprise God. He already knew that was going to happen. By the way, we talk about how the cross of Christ is a, a picture of God's love. I want to tell you something. The creation of Adam is a picture of God's love. Because God already knew what Adam was going to do, and he created him anyway. And so... All the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament, everything that happens in the Old Testament, every single thing pointed to a cross. Pointed to the day that Jesus would come, that he would go to a cross, the sin of the world would be laid on him, the wrath of God would be poured on him. And as I said, none of that would matter if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. And the risen and exalted Christ, you see, what Jesus came to do was restore us to where Adam lost. Adam had that relationship with God, but he lost it when he sinned. Jesus came to restore that. And, that, and the, the risen and exalted Christ does this. <clears throat> The resurrection is the keystone that holds the arch of the gospel and the Christian faith in place. We are to take the gospel, uh, which is the one message of hope to the world. 
Listen, there is no other hope. Did you know that? There is no other way. The book of Hebrews tells us that if you reject this Christ, if you turn away from the salvation he offers, there is no hope for you. None. There is nowhere else to go. There is only two ways, the way that leads to Christ or the way that leads to eternal damnation. And that's it. And every human being on this planet is on one of those roads. Every one of us. So we are to take the gospel. But the risen Christ is the key. Look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. For many people, uh, a profession of faith is sufficient for them to assume that they they are good with God as far as God's concerned. But folks, we need to understand here because there, there exists today in modern Christianity. Well, I say in modern Christianity, it's existed for years. But we see it very prevalent today, this thing called easy believism. You know, as long as you say, I believe in Jesus, then you're all right. But I want to tell you something, folks, that is a deception of hell to say that. Faith by itself means absolutely nothing. You say, I have faith. I believe. And James tells us the demons believe and they tremble. Have you ever trembled before God? Have you ever trembled before a holy God? And, you know, I think of the prophet Isaiah in the sixth chapter of Isaiah. He's standing there before God and he sees these, these angelic creatures that, that are unlike, you know, you're not going to see an angel like this on TV. Okay. By the way, you know, the angels that we see in movies and TVs, I don't find anywhere in the Bible. These, these, they have eyes all around. They have six wings and all of this. And anyway, here's Isaiah standing before the throne of a holy God. He hears these four living creatures constantly, day and night. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah is standing here and he says, oh, what a wonderful time this is. What a great place to be. No, that's not what he says. He falls on his face and he says, I am going to die because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. In other words, he says, I am a vile, filthy sinner in the presence of a holy God. And the only thing for me is to die. Of course, God says, well, Isaiah, I have other plans. And here he says, I have other plans. Faith in itself means nothing. The Bible speaks of a dead faith. Do you have a dead faith or a living faith? You know, we, the, we, it's very uh, important that we understand that when we are saved, we are not saved by our works. You can do all the works you want to do. You can go to church every Sunday. You can read your Bible every day. You can be the most eloquent uh, preacher or, or person that prays and still die and go to hell. 
Because those things don't save you. Only Christ saves us. And so we need to understand that uh, James says, you show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You see, the Bible is very clear that if I tell you I am a follower of Jesus Christ, my life will back that up. I will be in church because that's where I want to be. I will gather with God's people because I want to do that. I will read my Bible. I will pray, but it will be not because I'm trying to gain anything from God. Because once I'm saved, there's nothing else to gain from God. Did you know that the moment you're saved, you are as saved as you will ever be? You know, I, I, I hear people say, well, uh, I got a friend of mine who goes to a different denomination. He told me one time, he says, you know, he said, I got a little more of the Holy Spirit today at church. He said, yeah. And he told me, he said, and next Sunday, I'm looking to get a little bit more. And I said, well, I'm going to tell you something. When I got saved, I got all the Holy Spirit I'm ever going to get because I got all the Holy Spirit there is. There is no little bit here and there. When God saves, he does it all at once. And so here, these disciples, as Jesus appears to them, <clears throat> it says, when he showed them his hands and his feet, then they were glad to see the Lord. <sighs> Too often we, we, we want to be able to see something. You know, we, we have that saying, seeing is believing. The Bible says just the opposite, that believing is seeing. And so we have faith, but, but we must understand that faith in itself means nothing. There must always be someone, there must always be something in which that faith is placed. Now, I have had people tell me in my lifetime, Preacher, i got faith in you. Well, I'm going to tell you something, don't do that. Because here's something I want to tell you, something I want to confess to you, I will let you down. I will fail you. You know why? Because I'm just a man. That faith, John here, he, he is unequivocally as, uh, unequivocal as to what that object must be, a, a faith that leads to salvation. Our faith must be placed in Jesus. But listen, it's got to be more than that. Did you know that? Not just Jesus. It must be placed in Jesus, the Christ. The Son of God. And I want to tell you, there is a Jesus out there in many churches today that is not the Christ, and He's not the Son of God. He's a Jesus that just loves everybody. He's a, the Bible doesn't teach that, by the way. Did you know that? The Bible does not say anywhere that God loves everybody. Jesus did not come to save everybody. If He did, everybody would be saved. Jesus came for his own. And we must believe in Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. And notice that the first thing he said to these disciples, peace be to you. Peace. Don't we want peace in our life? Do you want peace in your life? Now, we need to understand that when the Bible talks about peace, it doesn't mean the absence of conflict or the absence of trouble. It means that you have a calm assurance in God in the midst of those things. All right? So uh, faith must be placed in Jesus. We must understand that we are sinners who trust that Jesus died for our sins. And we must trust that it is in Christ. And Christ alone is the only place you will ever find salvation. It's the only place. 
But I ask you, have you come to a place where you understand that you're a sinner, that you're not a good person, that you are a vile human being? The Bible says that the human heart is desperately wicked to the core. We are rotten to the core, and we need to understand this. I want to tell you something, folks. Any preacher that stands and tells you you're okay is lying to you. He's not telling you what the Bible says. And I'm not saying this to tell I'm not saying this because I want you to know you're a bad person. <laughs> I'm telling this because until you know that, you can't be saved. And so these disciples, they hear, they see Jesus and they, their, their, their faith is, is, is awakened in them. And they understand when he says peace to them. And he says, I love you. Peace be to you. They were afraid. They thought all hope was gone. And you know, if, if Mary, if it wasn't astonishing enough that Mary would stand outside of a grave or a tomb and talk face to face with Jesus and then all of a sudden realize who he was. These disciples, they were in a locked room. And all of a sudden, there he is. Now, how surprising must that have been? To be just standing there and all of a sudden, Jesus says, oh, hey, guys. I told you I'd be back. Do you realize if you go through the Gospels and you read every time Jesus told them what was going to happen to him? On that first Easter morning, they should have every one of them been standing outside that tomb waiting. Every one of them. But they weren't. Right? So, so we see that, that, that there must be a clear objective. Jesus must be the object of our worship. Look at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not, one of them, not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Then Thomas answered some of the most wonderful words ever uttered. My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Just as faith that has no object is foolishness, so also is faith that has no foundation. Let me ask you a question. Why should we trust Jesus? Why not trust in Allah or Buddha or Krishna? Why not? You can just there, there. There is a plethora of religious leaders in this world for us to choose from. Why Jesus? Why is he the one we must choose? Why is he the only way to salvation? You know, somebody asked me one time, they said, I don't understand why there's only one way to salvation. And I said, if you understood yourself, you would wonder why there is even one way to salvation. 
John's response is to point to the absolute uniqueness of Jesus, not just in terms of what he did or what he said, but who he is. Do you know who this is that is standing before these disciples? This is God in flesh. The same one that said to them, peace be with you, is the same voice that said, let there be light. We must understand who Jesus is. There was no more daring prophecy that Jesus could have made than to claim that he would ride, be dead and rise again. To forecast my own death is one thing. You know, I may go to the doctor and he may say, you know, you got this, whatever, and you got six months to live. And I can come in here and I can tell you, hey, folks, you know, you only got me six more months and then I'm dead. And, you know, it may or may not happen. But if I tell you, but don't worry about it, because a couple days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. Then you all going to start looking at me kind of funny. Well, that's how they looked at Jesus, too. They looked at him that way, but here's the difference. I can tell you three days after I'm dead, I'm going to rise from the dead. And I can tell you right now, unequivocally, it will not happen. But when Jesus said it would happen, guess what? It did. It did happen. This one prediction would either make or break Jesus' credibility. Jesus' point is that it proved, or John's point, is that it proved absolutely true. You know, in the book of Romans, <clears throat> Paul says in Romans 1-4, speaking of Jesus, it says, and he was declared to be the Son of God. Now, you don't understand what it means to be declared the Son of God. That means you're God. And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his Resurrection from the dead. Jesus hung on the cross and said, I'm God. Jesus rose from the dead and said, see, I told you so. I told you I was. It, it, it all comes around to who he is. This, is. this is why Allah and Buddha and all these others won't work. They're nobody. They're dead. The tomb that Jesus laid in is empty. The tombs of all these others, the bones of, their, uh, of these other leaders, they rot in there. And with, when facts of such enormity have been established beyond any doubt, especially in the face of death, which the Bible calls the last enemy. <clears throat> you see, I may die tomorrow. And I can guarantee you, I will rise from the dead. I just don't know when. That was the difference between, that's one of the things, he could tell you when because he was the one in control. But because Jesus told his disciples, he says, look, because I live, you will live also. And I love this because this is such, a, I have seen people's deer in the headlight looks when I tell them what Jesus said. Even if you die, you'll still live. Isn't that wonderful? 
That's what he says here, the last enemy. There can be no secure foundation on which our faith can rest uh, than the hope of eternal life, than on this one who was, die, who was crucified, he died, he was buried, and he rose from the dead. And he says, now, pin your hopes on me. And that's all we can do. That's all we can do. And we will have a true sense of direction. What is the end to which all of this finally leads up to? What, what is John trying to tell us? Look at verse 31. Well, verse 30 and 31. Now many, uh, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that you may have life in His name. So John says, here's why I wrote my gospel. Here's why I told you all these things that happened. Here's why I have given you Mary's testimony and the disciples' testimony about the resurrection of Jesus. It's so that you will believe that Jesus is exactly who the Bible says He is, God in the flesh. And that by believing in him, you can have eternal life. John says, that's why I've written this. In John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and have it to the very fullest extent. This is what he came to do. John makes it clear that this life becomes ours, not in some mystical or mysterious manner, but in the name of Jesus. And that is, it is entirely on His merit, on His account. You see, there's nothing good about me. The Apostle Paul put it best. He said, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. Nothing there's nothing that will earn me God's favor. There is nothing that, that in me that deserves God's grace. Nothing. But one day I will stand before a holy God and I will stand before him completely justified. Only because of Christ. Only because Jesus, as he bore my sin on the cross, as the wrath of God was poured out on him. And I will tell you, folks, this morning, you need to understand this. If you are not a follower, a true follower of Jesus Christ, the wrath of God is not coming for you. It's already here. Jesus said the wrath of God abides on you. And if that don't scare you to death, I don't know what else to tell you. But by his merits on his account, it comes by virtue of all that Jesus is and all that he accomplished and what he continues to do. The book of Hebrews says that for those who follow Christ, to those who believe on his name, that he ever lives to make intercession for them. Right now, Jesus is praying for me and he's praying for you. This is part of his continuing work. And in a world which for many is a life, is whatever you make it, the promise of the gospel is a life that consists of what Christ can make it. 
I want to tell you, I know what it's like to live a life without Christ. I had fun. I did. I, I had a preacher one time when I was a teenager. He was up there preaching, and he said, you young people, we were sitting on the back pew. My cousin was sitting behind me. We were kind of running buddies. And he said, I want to tell you, sin is no fun. And I looked at him, and I said, he ain't sinning like we are. He wouldn't have said that. Sin is fun. Pastor Adrian Rogers once said, you know, when a person gets saved, God doesn't make it where they can't sin. He just takes all the fun out of it. But I want to tell you something. The life I had before Christ, when I look back at it and I wonder, why didn't he just kill me? I really don't understand. God, I was so opposed to you. I lived my life with the focus on everything but you. Why did you even let me live? But then there came a day when, like Mary, I heard him say, Bobby, come to me. And everything changed. And people say, you know, don't you miss all that fun you had back then? No. <laughs> because I look back now and see that it really wasn't fun. It was what the world called fun. But these disciples and Mary... They knew, understand, came to under, came to understand what that life is not what you make it. It's only when you have Christ that you truly have life, and you let Him make it everything. And given the brokenness and the emptiness of this life that we live, here is the greatest reason to believe in the Christ of the gospel: the resurrection. You know, there's, there's one other aspect of the revel, re resurrection that, that most people don't, don't understand. I, I, I don't, you don't hear talked about much, and I want to just briefly tell it to you. Not only does the resurrection prove that Jesus was who he said he would, was, not only does the resurrection seal the eternal destiny of God's people, that salvation is complete, that our sin is gone. But it also means that when Jesus said, I will come again, he meant it. When he said, I'm coming the first time, he came. And when he says he's coming again, he's coming again. And you know, somebody has well said that Jesus came the first time to slay sin in men, but he will come the next time to slay men in sin. When Jesus comes the next time, he's not coming saying, hey, will you make me your savior? That'll be done. He's coming the next time to say, I'm here and I'm your judge. And your sin will be dealt with. And since you wouldn't let me deal with it, you're going to have to deal with it. And you know where you deal with it? In a place called hell for eternity where the wrath of God never ends. Are we prepared for that? Are we prepared to stand before a holy God? If you knew before this day's over I, that you would stand before a holy God and give an account of your life, and he says to you, what have you done with my son? What would you say? I have accepted him or I have rejected him. And if you say I have accepted him, he's going to say, show me the proof. Show me the holiness in your life. Show me the love in your life. Show me that you are like my son. We can't just say, I'm like Jesus, or I'm following Jesus. We have to actually do it. And by the way, remember what I said? Don't trust yourself to tell you the truth. 
Get in the Word of God. That's the only source of truth there is. If you think, you know what, I'm a follower of Christ, well, get in this book and find out. If you think, I know that I'm right with God, get in this book and find out. Because God will tell you the truth. You know why He tells you the truth? Because He loves you. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we, we, are, we are so grateful for the gospel this morning. For the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Christ is who He says He is. And Father, I pray that if there's one this morning that does not know Christ. And Lord, that you would change their hearts and open their blinded eyes. Open their deaf ears that they may hear. That they may respond to the gospel. And truly begin to follow you. Lord, help us not to be deceived into thinking that we are when we're not. Or that we're not when we are. Father, may we get into your word and search the scriptures to know the truth. And to know that Christ himself is that truth. And we ask it in his name. Amen.